VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Hello and welcome to the Game Podcast from The Times. I'm Natalie Sawyer. And I'm Gabriel Marcotti, and we thank you for joining us on a rather sunny, albeit a bit brisk, Monday morning in London. With us in the studio, it's Alan Smith. And down the line, it is the chief sports writer of the Times. That's right, the guy who gets to order all the other sports writers around because he is the chief. It's Matt Dickinson. Later on, we'll be looking at Gareth Bale as his time at the Bernabeu, perhaps, possibly, reaches a conclusion. But we start with an historic day at Wembley. Manchester City became the first English men's team ever to complete the domestic treble. Not only that, but Pep Guardiola's men equaled the biggest ever FA Cup final victory, a 6-0 win, matching the same scoreline that saw Berry beat Derby in 1903. Matt, how big a demonstration of dominance was this final then? Uh, pretty colossal, I guess. Um, I mean, it, yeah, when you're watching an FA Cup final and you're wondering, blimey, this this could be seven or or eight, um, perhaps even nine. Um, I mean, obviously, that you know, Watford had a couple of key early chances. Um, you felt like you had they had to um, grab any chance that was going to make a game of it. But yeah, no, City. I mean, we have to put it in the broader context. It wasn't just one game, was it? City have stuck four, five, six past um, plenty of teams. They've been racking up points records, goal records for, for the last two seasons. A domestic treble almost seems, you know, well, it's, it's historic. And yet for this team, it sort of seems um, almost what we would have expected. So, um, yeah, it's 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 something and I'm sure we'll get on to it. It throws up all sorts of other broader, wider questions about uh, dominance in the game generally. Just picking up on what Matt said there about Watford having early chances in that game, the biggest what-if for Watford is what if Robert Roberto Pereira even had uh, taken that chance at nil-nil. Alan, what do you think could have happened if Watford had scored first? Um, I still think City would have won. I mean, if you if, if you look at the... Brighton game a week earlier when obviously Brighton had scored and it was kind of the pressure is on and City just replied immediately and I think we've seen over the course of several months now that if City are in a tricky situation it's very rare that they don't pull themselves out of it um, and if Watford put one of those chances away sure it wouldn't have been a complete hammering but I would have struggled to have imagined even if say Roberto Pereira had scored his chance that City wouldn't have come back and won and probably still would have won comfortably. There's just such a such a gulf there. And, you know, there's some sympathy for Watford in, you know, in the case that they've reached this far only to come up against a team. And people have been discussing the sort of disparity between the money available, etc. And I think someone had a line over the weekend, I can't remember who it was, that you know, City are spending hundreds of millions and Watford, even though they're spending tens of millions, are still you know a significant amount of money, but are still nowhere near capable of of competing with a, a team you know playing at that level. Most of these guys hadn't actually won anything before coming to Manchester City. Most of these guys don't even really have, except for De Bruyne, maybe, and maybe with Sterling that'll change. But most of these guys don't even really have that much of an of an international dimension with their national sides. 
I, I think back, for example, to a guy like, like Raheem Sterling, who, you know, you guys all know the abuse he got during the World Cup. Obviously, Kyle Walker was a part of that team. People say, hey, he's a nice player, but nobody's going to get excited over Kyle Walker. Emmerich Laporte is a guy who was 23 years old and had never been capped for France because people thought he was a little bit wonky, you know, in the head and, and, and unreliable. Ederson had one season at Benfica under his belt uh, before coming over, and he had, I think, one cap when he arrived. Gundogan was a guy who was supposed to be great when he was 21, 22, and then kept getting injured. There's a weird dynamic there, and, and I wonder if this, this feeds into what they're trying to do or if it's, just, if it's just chance, that they tend not to buy or they haven't bought the finished article. And I'm not going to say that this is part of Guardiola's method because if you look at Bayern, you know, he worked with people who were the finished article and, and he signed some quote-unquote finished articles and certainly at Barcelona as well. But I don't know. I just, I just thought it was a different vantage point. I mean, am, am I talking nonsense, Alan? Or? I think it's a testament to this sort of scouting and recruitment policy because if you look at those signings as well very few have been for want of a better phrase duds I mean if you, if you look at Mares and people kind of have said throughout the season that Mares you know the most expensive substitute of all time etc but you know he's still despite the missed penalty at Anfield has come off the bench and accepted this role to an extent where he scored important goals against Brighton um, I know that you you could look and I'm sure there's a pretty strong argument that regardless of Mahrez, City would have come from behind and, and won at Brighton last weekend. But ultimately, all of those players who've come in have succeeded. They spend a lot of money on these players. Yeah. Not because, they're not unearthing gems or unknown players here by any stretch. I think what they're doing is they're identifying guys who are like, okay, yeah, I like you know Bernardo Silva at 25, 30 million. I don't like him for more than that because... You know, he's not a tremendous athlete. He's playing on the wing, Monaco, blah, blah, blah. And they say, no, no, we, we like him. Here's $60 million off the table, and here comes Bernardo Silva. Well, in the game today, you can read the inside story of the treble campaign with Paul Hurst. It's some fascinating behind-the-scenes info. Uh, Gabba, any favourites, any favourite insights that you can tell us about? I was struck by the role that Arteta plays. And again, this is a bit of a departure in some ways from the, the, the way Pep worked before in the sense that you know Arteta joins his training staff and obviously they, they've got Barcelona links and whatever else but it is still a case of you know an outsider coming into a, a close-knit group and he's allowed to grow in terms of presence to the point that you know did, did we read in Hursty's piece that Arteta keeps the players sometimes after training if he wants to go and try something out a number of the players would love him to to take over should Pep leave? I mean, Dicko, we, we've all been around managers and stuff, and they all have egos. There aren't that many, except for some of the really old guys, who are that comfortable having an assistant and delegating so much of the assistant that who could replace them one day. No, I mean, as you say, well, as they, as they get older, I mean, Fergie, Fergie was very much a hands-off presence in in pretty much most of the last decade. I mean, not in the sense he wasn't doing the work. He was still in their first thing and, 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 and last to leave. But he, he, you know, in terms of the sort of nuts and bolts of a training session, um, he would leave that to uh, leave that to his assistants. I mean, I think it is, you know, I think Arteta, well, as we know from, from his uh, almost getting the Arsenal job, you know, he's very ambitious, very keen to be a number one. Um, I mean, I think that would have been probably too soon for him, that job. I think he's better off staying where he is and continuing to learn. And as you say, if he gets a little bit of of a uh, chance to sort of do his own thing on the train uh, on the training ground then 
at the same time, I think you know this is Pep's show, isn't it? Let's you know, recognise that Arteta is is contributing and say he's going to be a fascinating figure because he's clearly going to get a decent job, perhaps even the City job after Guardiola. But you know, they're in the same way that you know Jurgen Klopp's assistant left a year or so ago, the brain as everyone called him, and you know it's hardly sort of changed anything there. The same way that Fergie went through five, six different assistants, you know, all had their value, but a manager sets such a tone for how he wants a team, well, certainly a good manager sets such a tone for how he wants a team to play. You know, he carries the vision of what he wants the team to do. Um, assistants are very much um, just that. And obviously it was Vincent Company's last game in the City shirt. He announced on Sunday he'd be leaving the club after 11 years in Manchester. Uh, Matt, a word then on his impact on the club and, and on the Premier League as well. Yeah, well, he's, you know, he's been... Um, I think probably Gary Neville sort of summed it up well in the end of tweet as saying, you know, he's one of those players that any any team would have wanted, um, yeah, partly for his his quality as a defender, but also just for that, you know, broader leadership. Um, I think he's someone who's always, you know, taken his responsibilities sort of seriously as as someone who is a, you know got a position of of some profile and stature. Um, I think you know he's he's contributed. Um, to 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 Manchester causes, um, yeah, he's just been an impressive guy in every way. And I mean, I was lucky enough to be there for that Leicester game. I mean, if you're going to sign off, um, well, a, a a do it holding up three trophies, and b do it having stuck a uh, 25 yard banger into the top corner. Um, he's not the best centre half um, in the Premier League of the last 10 or 20 years, but he's he's certainly up there as one of the most sort of impressive figures. Two things for me kind of encapsulate him, and I've had the the privilege of spending time with him, but one is if you look back at obviously he had all those injuries in the previous two or three years, but there were also times when he was fit and he wasn't playing. You know, he was like those Davis Cup captains, right? Um, Now, a veteran player in that situation, and I don't know if this is down to him or it's down to Guardiola, the way they interact with each other or the trust that's there, he he could very well say, you know what? I'm 31, 32, however old he was at the time. I'm not going to get in here. You, you know, you're signing, you sign Stones, you're signing other defenders. I really love you guys, but you know, you understand that I need to play. He could have done that then, but he didn't. He stuck around. Even when things didn't go well, he stuck around. To me, that absolutely speaks volume. And the other thing is, we just heard there from Dicko, a great player on the pitch with personality, somebody who knows when to follow the manager's orders and when to take the decision into his own hands, right? They Right down to, to the military on the battlefield. And that's exactly what he did. It doesn't make any sense in that moment for him to shoot. It's not what Pep Guardiola wants. Most likely the ball's going to go into Rosette. He hasn't scored from outside the box since 2007. And he says, I'm going to take responsibility now and do it. And I don't know that you can really put a value on that. What, what I'm curious about is he's decided that He's obviously going to Anderlecht, the club where he started, and this sort of player-manager role, which is kind of retro, not many player-managers out there. And I think it's interesting because he could have easily, I'm, I'm sure, given how clever he is, if, if he'd said, no, you know what, this is a good time for me to retire, but I want to be in some sort of grooming management track, you know, a la Patrick Vieira, different roles with the club and blah, blah, blah. And he chose not to do that. He chose to strike out on his own. He chose 
to do something that will teach him more because the challenges at Anderlecht are completely different from what he has at Manchester City. Manchester City, in some ways, is an ideal working environment right now. And he said, I want to go and learn there. I, I want to be at sort of a, more at the, at the coalface, so to speak. Not many people would be willing to do that while also leaving money on the table. You, know, you get all these ex-players or retiring players who, you know, not many decide to, no, obviously Anderlecht isn't the bottom of the food chain. But, you know, he's got a gilded path ahead of him. And he says, no, I'm going to go out into the brambles because I love Anderlecht and because I'll learn something. There is the grey cloud that is hanging over Manchester City, that being the issue of financial fair play. UEFA have been investigating them for a long time. There's even been talk of banning City from next year's Champions League. Guardiola was also asked a question by the journalist Rob Harris after the game about whether he'd received any separate payments from the owners. And that is in relation to a story that the former City boss, Roberto Mancini, allegedly received payments from the City owners to help stay within FFP. It's a bit of context. It hasn't just been talk of them being banned, that is what the investigatory chamber of the club financial control body, effectively the prosecution, has asked for. Now, the adjudicatory chamber will will ultimately decide that, and then they have a chance to go to an appeal to Cass. This is not over breaches of financial fair play. This is over um, allegations that they misled investigators, and it's to do with the stuff that came out in Der Spiegel from, from the Football League's trove. That's also where the story about Roberto Mancini comes from. Specifically, the idea was that to keep wages down, um, he received a payment from another club that was somehow linked uh, to, uh, I think it might have been part of his payoff after he left, uh, another club that is linked to the uh, Abu Dhabi royal family and for consulting services. So there's, there's implications there. And... Rob Harris from the Associated Press went and he uh, and he asked Guardiola that, that question. And as you all saw from the video, Pep did not take it too kindly. So how did he, in case someone hasn't seen it, how did he respond? He said, I'm paraphrasing here, but like, and I'm not going to do the accent, but it's like, you know, do you know what it means to ask me this question on this day? Why are you asking me this now? I think he was taken aback that uh, Rob had the, had the guts to go and ask him in that context and what was a day of celebration. Now, just to lift the lid on this, and Dicko, you'd probably know this better than, than I would, but people have criticized Rob Harris, like, why not, Why are you asking it then? Why are you grandstanding then? Why haven't you asked them before? Rob Harris asked Manchester City about this seven months ago, and they have not provided an answer. People have said, why didn't he rock up to any Guardiola press conference before Sunday and ask the question. Can you maybe explain why that might have been the case? Um, well, I'd, I'd, I'd have to sort of speak to Rob about that more, but I, I don't think, you know, I don't think the timing is, is the issue here. I mean, you know, I think, yeah, there's Guardiola cannot like the timing, but that doesn't mean to say he shouldn't still answer, answer the question. Um, and that's the one thing notable in his answer is that um, there isn't actually a a straight answer to a straight question. Um, he could have said yes, no, and I'll get back to you. But uh, no, I, I, I mean, I'd, yeah, I, on this issue, I don't think personally. I don't think the issue is is his Rob. Um, clearly, uh, as you say, he he's been trying to get an answer to that question for some time. Um, and if he feels like it's being deflected, then he's perfectly entitled to ask. Manchester City have issued a statement where they 
very clearly deny the charges. They say that they have submitted, that they have ample evidence that proves their innocence, that they have submitted to the investigative chamber who obviously ignored it. But um, they're very, very confident that the adjudicatory chamber will clear them. Even if they're not cleared, the understanding is that they'll continue to appeal and they'll go to CAS, which I think means, you know, if, as, as the UEFA chamber recommended, a one-year ban, it's not going to be next season. I think Matthews had written last week that it's likely to be, if, if it is enforced, it's likely to be 2020-21 because of the delays and the, the appeals that are... You need to get a definitive answer by the time the Champions League qualifiers start, and they start in late July... So given that it's now late May, you need to get a verdict from the adjudicatory chamber and then you'd need Cass to take the case um, and issue a verdict. And I think it's going to be very, very difficult um, to get a ruling. So, yeah, I, I would expect Manchester City to play in the Champions League next season. Can I just make one point as well? I, I mean, I think this should trigger wider discussions about FFP as well. I mean, obviously, you know, if City have broken the rules that they signed up to, then they will have to be punished equally i do think there's bigger discussions to be had about the nature of those rules um you know and and whether they're actually doing the serving the purpose that they're intended to you know who drafted them and why i know that discussion has been going on some time but i think you know that that remains relevant too i mean as 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 henry's referenced in his uh match report this morning you know are rules right when the glazers can take a billion out of football and it's against the rules to put a billion in you know these are you know this, you know even start with that fundamental point um I, I do think this shouldn't end with the city situation i do actually think there are sort of big issues about whether the ffp rules have a sort of a moral force uh, uh, are enforceable full stop you look at the way that championship clubs are um completely circumventing the spirit of them by you know, leasing out stadia, are they being enforced or not? Um, I think there's just a massive, understandable distrust of FFP rules and, you know, they, they seem to be uh, the massive discrepancies in them in different competitions. Well, finally, that wasn't the only altercation when we're referring to what happened with uh, that press conference with Pep Guardiola, but uh, that involved the press on, on Saturday. A Manchester City fan burst into the press box after the game, berated members of the press for showing Liverpool bias. He used expletives. He said Mo Salah would probably be on Sunday's back pages instead of City's treble win. Alan, do you think he speaks uh, for how City fans feel in general? Um, quite surprised by the level of anger from a lot of City fans. Obviously it's not all of them but there is a significant proportion who seem to have really bought into the idea that during the title run-in the media as a whole were in favour of Liverpool and wanted Liverpool to win. The argument was that oh, they get so much more coverage and I think to an extent it is kind of natural that Liverpool would get more coverage in that City have been successful in recent years and obviously it's been more than two decades since Liverpool last won a league title. Beyond that, there... Liverpool are also a bigger club. We have more fans, yeah. therefore more readers. But also, and City isn't news because City were great last season yeah, too. No, exactly. Because it was it was a similar thing with, you know, before Leicester had won the title a few years back, there, there was far more coverage towards Leicester than any of the other teams because this was new this hasn't been covered before um, so I think part of the anger stems from that another part is this sort of the idea that you know anyone who dares to question the financial position City find themselves in again it's 
an anti-city agenda rather than asking deserved questions, which you know anyone who sort of views this dispassionately will fully appreciate that these questions should be asked. City vans haven't taken that well. I was alerted yesterday to one of the fan forums has a thread that's almost at 100 pages uh, singling out various journalists who've written stuff and, you know, they're anti-city, must be a Liverpool fan, must be a United fan, etc. And going back to the point Gab made about Rob Harris a while ago and people saying that he, he should be banned by the club, I only had a flick through this forum yesterday, but it, a lot of the content is the club should ban this journalist because he's had, you know, the temerity to criticise us and he shouldn't be left in. And a certain amount of them have this view that they don't need the media, they don't need the press, let's just cover the games ourselves, that's it. We don't want these people in here questioning us. Um, and I find that bizarre. So it, there needs to be an acceptance that City, because of the situation, had they've developed into a big club, they're not going to be universally loved. And I think a, a certain proportion of those City fans want that to be the case because they see, they see, you know, we're playing this amazing football and can't separate, you know, fail to separate the club and the money behind it with that football. Um, Manchester United weren't universally loved when they were dominating. And for those of us who are older, like Dicko and I, I think we can assure you that Liverpool were not universally loved uh, in the 1980s either. Um, but there is one point, whatever happens at the end, and maybe City can, can go and they can prove, they have the evidence and they can prove they're entirely innocent. There is a bit of a disconnect because when people raise this issue, they say, well, FFP is illegal anyway and it will get voted down in a court of law or, or it will be struck down by the European court. Find me a situation where somebody from Manchester City, from the football club, on the record, has said, we don't support financial fair play and we're going to sue you. You cannot make the FFP is a legal argument if you're Manchester City because you elected to follow it. Back in 2014, and they could, they probably should have done that. Or, I mean, if they believed it, they, they, they could have done it. If they didn't believe that financial fair play or some mechanism like it was necessary to maintain the order and turn this into an investable business, because I can assure you, for all the talk of soft power or whatever, the people who own them don't like, they're, they're not in it because they're football fans or, or because they, they like losing money. They could have gone and they could have challenged it in court, and maybe they, they would have had to sit out a year of European football, maybe two years. But then at the end, they would have either won or they would have lost and they would have given it a go and they could have said, we don't respect financial fair play. They would have, they would have had the moral high ground in this. And they never did. So it's kind of like when it suits them, they love financial fair play. When it doesn't suit them, meh. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. This season, with your subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times, you can watch every highlight and every goal from every game in the Premier League. It's just £8 for an eight week trial. The Gareth Bale saga rolls on at Real Madrid. The Welshman was an unused substitute at the Bernabeu in the final game of the season against Real Betis. Bale then went down the tunnel without acknowledging the home fans and Zinedine Zidane said after the game, if I think a player doesn't fit in the team, I have to do what I think works best. No one can change what Bale has done for the team, but as a coach, I have to live in the present. So it seems perhaps his days in Madrid are numbered question is who can afford him gab yeah well there's a there's a really good piece about this in uh in the paper today um i'll get into that the answer is nobody can afford six hundred thousand pounds a week which is what his salary is and i know people keep quoting the other figure because people haven't wrapped their head around net and gross wages yet he's an outstanding footballer he's not at this moment in time a guy who deserves to be among the five highest paid players in the world and therefore, other clubs will not go and give him that contract. I find it amazing how, you know, when this came out on social media, people's reactions were like, oh, look, after all, he's done for the club. And he was rewarded by the club for what he's done by being made one of the five highest paid players in the world. Zinedine Zidane, in an irrelevant game, and the last two games before this, actually, he didn't even make the match they squad at all, despite being fit. In this game, he started... Brian Diaz, who's 19, and Vinicius, who's 18, so he could get a look at these guys who were going to be part of the future. In Bale's defense, you can't use the argument about fitness because he's been basically continuously fit since about October of last season. He's played some, hasn't played quite that much, um, or as much as you would expect when somebody's making that amount of money. On a per 90 minute, if you're into stats and numbers, his stats haven't really declined. The only area which is very different is he doesn't, is his number of successful dribbles, but, you know, that's fine. But the reality is, is that the club need to rebuild in the summer, and they're stuck with this huge ball and chain of his contract. You know, we talk about them wanting to sign Eden Hazard. Well, they've already spent money on Luka Jovic. They have, obviously, Vinicius. They have Marco Asensio. They have Karim Benzema. They have Gareth Bale. It's difficult to then add Eden Hazard as well. So that's why I think... You know, it's not them being mean. It's them making a business decision. Um, What do you want to do? Do you want to stay here and not play or risk not playing very much because we have decided to go in a different direction? Or do you maybe want to go and try to relaunch your career somewhere else? But if you do that, 
you will have to take a pay cut. Maybe you can earn the same amount of money over five years rather than over three years. And, you know, the window of opportunity is closing for you because you turn 30 this summer. Given it was a game that didn't matter then for, for Real, with Champions League qualification already assured and that Bale will probably be leaving, Matt, what does it say about Zidane's relationship with Bale that he didn't give him a farewell appearance? Well, it's, it's been strained for a long time, as we know. It's been strained back to um, Zidane's previous stint. I mean, I, I was just checking back this morning because I did a, a piece pretty much a year ago um, asking the same sort of questions, you know, and basically saying it's, it's down to Bale to really decide what he wants with what's left of his career. Um, I mean, it's, it's a couple of reasons why, if you are a, a club, aside from the wages as well, it, um, whether you'd be looking at him, and obviously he's, you know, he's, he's a um, hugely talented footballer, one of one of the, the great British um, footballers, full stop. But the, the fact is that he, you know, he relies a lot on his athleticism, and, and obviously there are questions about how, you know how much of that is left. Also, just you know, quite a big fundamental question about his hunger for it. Um, I spoke to a couple of people, you know, who who know him pretty well and have worked with him, you know, this time last year when when we were asking these questions about whether he's going to stick it out or you know, happy to stay on there even if he doesn't play. And and they, it was the point was raised about you know he. He clearly likes his football, cares about his football, has committed a lot to his career. But they were saying they weren't even sure if he'd continue playing beyond beyond this contract that he had there till 2022. They're saying he's the type of guy who might walk away age, you know, 31, 32. He's not, you know, he's someone who's who's more obsessed with golf than he is with football, which say isn't to say he's unprofessional. It just means that it's not his, you know, his his everything. And um, yeah, these that, these are big questions that almost well only Gareth Bale can answer. You know, does he sit there and think I need to play? I must play. I have to play. Um, and yeah, he need, he needs to answer those pretty soon. In Zidane's defence about why he didn't give him a farewell, Bale has said time and again, "I'm not leaving. I'm not going anywhere." If Bale had said, "Yeah, this will probably be my last game," then he might have had a farewell. The other thing, and again, it's down to culture, but. At the end of, of that game, in which Real Madrid lost, by the way, and they got roundly booed as they've been roundly booed most of the season, all the players went, gathered in the center circle and, and said goodbye to the fans. And part of that goodbye is also taking responsibility to the people who pay your wages, who are the supporters, that if they want to abuse you and tell you to work harder, that is their right as a supporter. All his teammates were there. And what does he do? He just disappears down the tunnel. Now, that... I think, is bad optics. Did he disappear down the tunnel because he doesn't care? He certainly wants to give people the impression that he doesn't care. (laughs) That's certainly the message, and he doesn't want to be there. That's certainly the the message that that goes out. Um, The obvious analogy is in 2009, Real Madrid had a very talented uh, goal-scoring winger named Aryan Robin, who'd also had injuries and stuff like that, and was very quick and scored great goals. And that summer, the club spent a ton of money on Kaká and Cristiano Ronaldo, and and they went to Robin and they said, "Listen, you got to go. You're not going to play anymore." And he went, and he took a pay cut, and he ended up at a club called Bayern Munich, and he went on, and he won eight league titles. He won a Champions League final. Um, he was in another final as a player. He relaunched his career elsewhere. Now, he was, I think, 26 or 27 at the time. So he's a couple years younger than Bale. If Bale wants to do that, he can do that. You know, if Bale wants to come home 
Um, I'm not saying go back to Cardiff and play in the championship or whatever or, or, or go back to Spurs or whatever. You know, he can make it work. But the impetus has to come, has to come from him. If he doesn't, then he'll go down to one of the most expensive mistakes in Real Madrid history. Not the signing of him, because obviously he delivered big, but the fact that you opted to give a five-year contract at, at nearly Cristiano Ronaldo-type levels to a guy who, who then you decide you don't like. This is why it's so important for a club to know when to extend a contract and when not to. Alan, where do you think it all went wrong then for Bale at Real? Um, the Oldfield stuff has been interesting for quite a while I think initially I think it was Marcello was one of the first to mention that Bell likes playing golf more than he likes playing football and that seemed to be a stronger argument when he was struggling with the back injuries because obviously playing golf can contribute to that but as Gab has mentioned he's been fit for more than 12 or 18 months now and so therefore if he wants to go and play golf after training, if that's how he wants to spend his afternoons, I don't really see that being an issue. Um, on top of that, there's this sort of accusation um, that he doesn't really make much of an effort to speak Spanish, doesn't really socialise with, with with his teammates. And I, reading Hersley's piece on Man City this morning, I'm kind of struck by, there's a mention halfway through about Bernardo Silva and how he's sort of embedded himself in the city dressing room helped by the fact that he speaks four languages but he can communicate with everyone and that obviously is a, is a key part of sort of embedding yourself in a, in a new dressing room, a new culture but then again is that the be all and end all because if you look at Sergio Aguero who's also been in that city dressing room for a lot longer than Bernardo, doesn't speak much English so I don't think you know the language barrier obviously plays some role but I don't think that's the the be all and end all and you know as, as Gavin Matt have touched on his desire and his you know will to be involved is a far bigger question mark yeah, one final thing on this and why this also matters from from a different vantage point too is that these clubs Real Madrid Manchester City United these aren't just football clubs these are media entities they're lifestyle brands whether we like it or not I know a lot of people don't like it but that is part of what pays these players' wages. You represent the club. The club exploits you commercially. You know, you're, you're part of selling a brand. And when you've got this guy who, you know, sits on the bench and he's giggling with Tony Crows when, 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 when they're 2-0 down and he disappears down the tunnel and you're not contributing to the brand. And that's another reason, I think, why Real Madrid, if they could, would get him out of there. Enough bail, how about we lift the mood with some quick hits? Brighton have agreed to pay around £3 million in compensation for Graham Potter and his staff less than a week after parting company with Chris Hughton. Now, for those who don't know, Graham Potter is the manager of Swansea in the championship, who was previously in uh, Scandinavia at Ostersunds, uh, and he's one of those rare English coaches who decided to go abroad and build their career there and is now coming back. Sort of a bit like a like a, a younger, more handsome Roy Hodgson, would you agree? Uh, Dicko, what's the big deal with this guy? Well, it's interesting. I was talking to someone at Swansea um, the other day, um, obviously when this became a big tug-of-war, and, and yeah, they've um, got a lot on their plate in terms of finances and balancing books and sort of sorting out the club in all sorts of ways. And they were saying... Um, this was a few weeks ago, actually. They were saying how, you know, Graham Potter was... The, the relief was they've got a manager that 
they really liked um, really liked what this plan for for sort of rebuilding the fact that he you know was very resourceful was willing to sort of work with with his financial restraints clearly could improve players um, individual players had you know just just a bright modern broad thinking well educated coach um, and they're pretty gutted to lose him put it that way speaking of the championship as we record this we are a week away from the championship playoff final between Aston Villa and Derby Alan of those teams who would you find a more exciting addition to the Premier League um, I think Villa mostly because Richard O'Kelly is yeah. the assistant manager and he's Irish right no, because uh, another famous Irishman, Jack Grealish. Um, oh, right. I'd quite like to see Jack him. Uh, he was, he yeah, was, was yeah, a bit like Declan Rice. Um, I'd quite like to see him back in the Premier League because since you know the, there was that season when they were relegated and there were certain flashes, but he's matured so much since then. Um, to be honest, if Derby do win the playoff final, I would imagine that a Premier League club will come in. And Grealish would be likely to move anyway, but it, it would be really good to see him back in the top flight with his, you know, his boyhood team. Um, and I think Derby, because their best players predominantly have been signed on loan, um, there's no way of being certain that they're still going to be there. Wilson, Mason Mount, Kyle um, Tomori. So I just wanted yeah. to go and like show Look that I can name three championship players on a single because team. Because they all yeah. came from Premier League clubs. Of course, yeah. And Tamori won their play, like the club's player of the season as well. Um, Whereas Tammy Abraham, of course, is Villa born and bred. No, but the, the, <laughs> still, Villa more. Right. You know, have, I think can bring more. Um, you know, who knows? Derby might end up bringing a lot of the, a couple of those players in permanently, and may possibly sign more. But I do think Villa are better equipped if it's uh, if we're discussing survival next season. Natalie, one for you. Swansea aren't the only championship club losing their manager. There's a vacancy on Teesside. Now, I know Teesside is newspaper code for Middlesbrough, right? Um, Please tell me more. Yeah, Tony Pulis has left Middlesbrough. Uh, after 18 months in charge, he led Borough to the playoff semi-finals last season, but missed out on the playoffs on the last day of the regular championship season, despite spending the majority of the campaign inside the top six. Uh, owner Steve Gibson did thank Pulis for his efforts, but in the two years since they were relegated from the Premier League, they have spent big in an attempt to get back. £14 million on Britis on Belonga, £9 million on Martin Braithwaite, £14 million last summer on Aidan Flint and George Saville, none of which have been that successful at the club. So it's fair to say not too many fans have uh, been sad to see Pulis go as they weren't really massive fans of his style of play. Now, the bookie's favourite for the job is someone you will know, Jonathan Woodgate. Oh, Woody! Yeah, Borough born and bred, former player, current coach at the Riverside. There are other names in the frame as well. Chris Hewton, former boss of Borough, Eitel Karanka, and also Lincoln's Danny Cowley. This is the guy with the brother, right? Yes. But we never, no Presumably way, you get both We only ever yeah? speak about Danny. Gotcha. Okay. Manchester United have been strongly linked with Fulham's Ryan Sessegnon. Matt, you know your way around Craven Cottage. Is he ready? Um, well, he's certainly dipped. He's been part of sort of Fulham's um, slump this season, hasn't he? I mean, he's, you know, definitely there's a lot of talent in there. But, um, yeah, struggle to adapt, uh, to be honest, whether... We'll have to see whether that's sort of just he was sort of caught up in in Fulham's woes, chopping, changing managers, uh, and everything that was going on there. I, I, you know, he's young enough and has enough surely to bounce back. But going to Man United uh, at a club that has to rebuild in a lot of different ways, um, 
yeah, he's not going to find a stable life there. So I, I can see it happening, but um, it's 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 not going to be an easy time for him um, at United. Matt, what's his best position? That is a good question. I, I mean, certainly further, I, I, I can't see him... Uh, I think most people don't see him as a left back. I think it's it is further forward. I mean, he's he's got. Um, so yes, I mean, in that sense, there's a sort of back to back to Gareth Bale. Uh, he's got a versatility like that, hasn't he? Um, but I suspect it'll be it'll be further forward. Arsenal are preparing for the Europa League final in Baku, but the club are also looking at the summer transfer campaign. Alan, if you could imagine yourself as an Arsenal employee, maybe as Raul Sanyehi, and you could bring in three starters, what positions would they play? Um, Short-term, three defenders for next season. Three defenders? Yeah, I think so. Well, two centre-backs and a left-back? Yeah, yeah. Um, Because I think in midfield... You're not getting a Christmas card from Nacho Monreal, you know that. (laughs) Wasn't getting one anyway. Kolasinac is coming around your house. (laughs) Um, Midfield, I think they have... In Torreira and Guendouzi and Xhaka, who, you know, Xhaka, since he's arrived at the club, seems to get a lot of flack, particularly from opposition supporters, but I think he's actually had quite a, a decent season. Um, Torreira has been quite good. Guendouzi, obviously, there's a lot of potential there. Strikers have scored a lot of goals. I think in the long term, you need to look at their age as well. Lacazette and Aubameyang, it's not, you know, they're not going to be there six, seven years from now still scoring. So eventually they will need more offensive sort of players coming in but immediately that defence needs a lot of attention if they're to close the gap on on Liverpool and City Gap last one for you Max Allegri wins his fifth title in a row at Juventus but he's leaving next month what on earth's happened yeah, this is a weird. This whole story's been a slow burn. Obviously, they were knocked out of the Champions League by by Ajax, and then that same night, the club president and Daniele comes out and says, uh, "No, no, no, he's staying. The cycle continues." Blah blah blah. He did have a year left on his contract, and in the end, it came out that Allegri, you know, in addition to more years, also wanted a bump in wages and a little more say over transfers. There was sort of an internal debate at the club already about. Whether you know it was time to move on, whether to try to make the club you know more more of an attacking, high press type club. What was remarkable is the joint press conference where they announced kind of that he was moving on. And to all my friends out there who are directors of comms, if you want good optics, and you've of course have made a real hash of comms many times in the past, but this was pretty much a masterpiece because they sat side by side. They invited the entire first team, including that Cristiano Ronaldo fella, in to go and sit next to the journalists and, and applaud. And there was basically a big loving with Andrea Agnelli saying that, you know, he he had gained a friend and it was the most difficult decision of his career. And Max Allegri getting choked up and, you know, nearly crying several times to get a sip of water and whatnot. Time will tell if it's the right decision, but it does show that Juventus are, are probably thinking that, you know, you kind of need to evolve or die here. And um, what's going to be really interesting, too, is that they've committed a ton of money to a lot of older players, including Aaron Ramsey, of course, who's going to be joining next season. And, of course, you have Cristiano Ronaldo. So you have a window of opportunity that is closing. So you kind of need to win right now, which means you can't really go for a rebuild or, or, or a manager's philosophy is so different that you will then require a rebuild. 
Okay, that is it for now. Many thanks to our guests today, Matt Dickinson and Alan Smith. Remember, you can subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times, too, to enjoy award-winning journalism online. You get it online, and you get it on your smartphone or tablet. It's just one pound a week for an eight-week trial. And what you need to do is search The Times subscription for more information. We'll be back next Monday, looking ahead to the Europa League final, Arsenal versus Chelsea. The game is brought to you by The Times. For more information and more podcasts from The Times, head to thetimes.co.uk. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhones.